What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Pardon me, but I would like to see this money spent on more police officers. I have been shot eight times this year, and as a result, I almost missed work. I hate Apu. Hate Apu. Hate Apu. And because of that, I dislike The Simpsons. Wow, the whole series. The whole series? I love The Simpsons. I just don't love that character. I have never been able to divorce the two. I love The Simpsons because... You hate yourself. Hey, everyone. I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and this is Represent. Welcome back. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about Apu, the animated Indian-American Quickie Mart owner from The Simpsons, who's been the source of ire for many real-life Indian-Americans for nearly 30 years. Rooted in stereotypes about how they speak, their professions, and how they live, and perhaps worst of all, voiced by a white dude, Hank Azaria, for decades, Apu was the only cultural example of an Indian-American on TV. Comedian Hari Kondabalu, who is also co-host of the smart and funny podcast Politically Reactive with W. Kamau Bell, has made a documentary about his thorny relationship with a character called The Problem with Apu. And it features interviews with other prominent South Asian entertainers who grew up with Apu, including Aziz Ansari, Hassan Minaj, and Aparna Nancharla. But first, myself, my producer Verilyn, and another colleague of mine sat down recently to discuss our own experiences with having to feel represented by one-note broad characters in our youth. Check it out. So we have a really great conversation with Hari Kandabalu coming up in a bit, uh, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the idea. I mean, I think one of the things about Apu that you and I have been discussing, and I think I overheard you and Benjamin Frisch, who is on the show today. Welcome, Benjamin. Hey, Aisha. Hey, everyone. (laughs) So Benjamin is one of our great producers here at Slate. He produces the Slate Culture Gap Fest and Mom and Dad are Fighting. Mom and Dad are Fighting. The Audio Book Club. I mean, he produces like half the (laughs) shows. (laughs) Yes. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to finally have you on. Yes. So... Like I was saying, yeah. we've all we've all been sort of talking uh, independently of one another um, about this idea of a poo and how he, as a cultural stereotype, a racial stereotype, is kind of an anomaly in terms of the way he was conceived. Uh, Verlin, you want to expand upon that a bit? Yeah, more? I mean, I think that our conclusion, our, our the way we got to that was through me and Aisha trying to think about like, okay, well, who would our Apu be? Like, who would be the character who growing up represented our identity in such a stereotypical way, mostly because it wasn't actually made for us, but for a predominantly white audience. And I couldn't think of a character. I couldn't either. (laughs) And And Ben and I were talking earlier today. And similarly, we were like, is there a specific character? Um, I think you probably got a little closer. We should also mention that Ben is white, but not heterosexual. <laughs> I'll let you identify yourself. <laughs> it's true. That's fair. <laughs> that is fair. Um, so maybe there is something there um, uh-huh. as far as like your ability to kind of pinpoint a character. For me, when I was thinking about it, I mean, I'm Sarah Leonian. Anyone that knows me now would be surprised to hear this. But when I was very, very young, I was not proud about being African. I was always like my mom would try to put me in certain outfits and prints. I'm like, no, mom, I don't like this. Um, <laughs> the, the stereotypes about like how Africans smell, the overarching Africans, right? Whatever that means. <laughs> uh, how Africans dress, the foods. And, and I always like, even though on the one hand I grew up with it and now I totally embrace it. And like anyone that, like I said, will be surprised to hear me say this. But growing up, I was kind of like 
ashamed of it. And in some ways, it was more acceptable to say that you were Caribbean because there were a lot more Caribbean representations. Like, it was clear that people were Jamaican and Trinidadian. And And you also grew up where? Oh, I grew up in the Bronx. Yeah, Yeah. so there's a pretty heavy Caribbean population in New York in general. I mean, there's a pretty heavy African population. I know, I but like but... it was the overarching African. Like it wasn't yeah. like Sierra Leonean and get, like there's so many differences as far as religion and foods and even the prints and color. You know, there was the well, we've we've talked about this on the show before, but like coming to America has yeah, yeah, that was sort so of so that was so that was yeah, coming to America and then in high school there was a Jay Z song called "Girls, Girls, Girls." I remember that very very <laughs> clearly. And for a good part of freshman year, I was Miss Fufu. <laughs> because there's a line in there in which he says, I got this African chick with Eddie Murphy on the skull. She like Jigga Man. Why you treat me like animals? I'm like, excuse me, Miss Fufu. But when I met your ass, you was dead broken. And so, you know how young people do. They took that one line, Miss Fufu. They're like, oh, you're African, so you must be Miss Fufu. Did, did you take that as negative or... Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't even like fufu. <laughs> well, I like gari. I, I also have to admit my total ignorance. I don't know what fufu is referring to. So fufu is... I don't either, actually. Oh. Wow. Welcome to the <laughs> class of African cuisine. Um, so fufu is the thing that you eat with the sauce. It's oh. like the white... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I don't even know what it's made of, but I actually... So, but it's like a white ball that you, yeah. you make. It's kind of like rice balls, but it's like fufu. That sounds great. But I actually like, I don't like fufu. I like gari, which is like the cassava version of fufu, but you use it in the same way. Also, the idea of like eating with your hands is a thing that you traditionally eat with your hands, which I love. Like, give me a good gari and like bitter leaf soup. I'm here for it. But there was something about like that representing like, first of all, all of Africa. (laughs) And then me specifically as a, a girl that grew up in the Bronx. I, it was just, it was something that built shame. I felt shameful about that. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Who is or what is your apu? The the only character that I could think of, um, in in a lot of ways, is come came to mind was uh, Jack from Will and Grace uh, on the Culture Gap Fest. We did a segment about Jack recently, um, and so I'd been I had been sort of thinking about this, but. Uh, this character is in some ways very different from Apu. Uh, the people involved in the creation of Will and Grace, even back when it first started, were you know, you know, more well represented than Apu, who is voiced by a white man, and 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 all of that stuff. But there is, I feel like gay people, especially then, but even today, still have this very complicated relationship with Jack as both a symbol of representation as like it's good that he was certainly a character on television while also representing um, something that a lot of gay people are very afraid of. There's a a video, a great video on Slate um, uh, on one of the other shows I'm doing called Working. We're going to be in, uh, we're doing a season about people who work in queer industries who have kind of queer jobs. We're interviewing Ms. Cracker, who's a yeah, uh, Cracker, a great drag queen. Um, she did a video with Jay Bri- uh, Brian Louder, who's a writer. Yes, a slate writer. And yeah. and at one point, Ms. Cracker says, "Isn't every gay man afraid of being Jack from Will and Grace? Don't we all share the fear of being a?" clown or stereotype there's a bit of a conflict uh i think within gay psychology between a love of masculinity obviously i mean we're attracted to men and so masculinity is important uh but also this sort of history of campiness uh, that i think is a big part of gayness for most men and or, or queeniness maybe you want to call it it's complicated because on one hand that is due to Jack's portrayal in the show, especially early on, where he was sort of this this very femi queen kind of character um, at a time when gay people were, uh, you know, I think fair to say were uh, interested in respectability and trying to be perceived as sort of serious in a way and mm-hmm. that we're not just this one stereotype. Um, on the other hand... I think a huge part of the reason why we respond so negatively to Jack is also internalized homophobia because gay people like that totally exist. Um, And 
gay male relationship to masculinity has changed and become more and more subtle over time, but there's still this undercurrent of like of masculinity as this like prized thing. Like the no femme thing. Right. Well it, it's it, it started out as no femmes yeah. and then it turned into straight acting, like straight looking straight acting, and then it became um masculine for masculine. And now it's like even subtler codes because that has people have sort of gotten the message that like that's kind of a shitty thing to say. Mm-hmm. So there it's now even more about the way that you take your pictures or present mm. yourself you were talking about a, a a baseball cap yeah like <laughs> it's like <laughs> dudes in all of their pictures when they're wearing their like backwards baseball caps looking very serious <laughs> yeah. and like it's you know you start to see trends and patterns and mm. like uh dudes talking about how much they love camping and stuff it's like i mean maybe you do love camping <laughs> but like all well all gay men love camping but <laughs> Uh, I mean, I see what you did there. The, you know, it's like yeah. as a character, I think that he is a little bit like Apu in that he is a character that is so culturally complicated. Mm-hmm. They're both characters that were maybe conceived in a very specific moment. Uh, Apu, I think, was created maybe at the maybe the last possible moment, or maybe not quite the last possible moment, but certainly you would never see a character like Apu. Um, conceived and then nurtured in the mm, same way. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could say I had an Apu, but to be honest, like I don't have anything that's quite like that. Mm. I, I'm not African, or I, at least I'm not. <laughs> I don't know where in Africa I'm from because you know slavery. Yeah, uh, but so like I didn't grow yeah. up with that. But you know, I did have the, you and I were talking. The closest thing I could come up with was like. When the Spice Girls came out, I was always amongst my friends, Scary Spice, because I was black. And I was like, I don't want to be Scary Spice. And why she got to be scary? And why she got to be scary? Like, all the other ones had, like, things that pertain to their person. Like, Sporty Spice was Sporty Spice. Ginger was, like, kind of, you know... Spicy. And she, I think Ginger also because she had red hair. She had red hair. Yeah. And Posh was Posh. And yeah. Baby like looked like she dressed like a baby. But then Scary Spice, it was like she wore leopard prints. Is that what it was? I think it was I her hair. <laughs> and it was her hair. There is a way that like other it's like uh, other people project categories onto you. Yeah. I, I'm half Jewish and I can't think of any like major cultural figures that would fit. Mm. this sense but a little bit um is it kyle in south park is jewish oh is he yeah i've and and so there was always like i don't know people would relate me to that character in some way yeah i don't i don't know that's a a much minor more minor but that's that's kind of similar yeah like to me that's the only connection that i really have to the apu is that like like hari and like other indian americans who grew up like everyone was just like okay you're that. You're a poo. They would just call you a poo. And for me, granted, it wasn't like I was walking down the street and someone called me Scary Spice. But like, if it was in the context of we're going to play the Spice Girls, and when yeah. I when I came when I was nine or ten, the Spice Girls became a big thing, and that was all we wanted to do. It's like <laughs> you're Scary Spice. Mm. And top it all off, my dad made me like I wanted the dolls. He's like, I'm not buying you any white dolls. You get Scary Spice. And I was like, no. <laughs> I did have Scary Spice. I played with her, but I wasn't happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you felt underrepresented in your life, you've had someone, you've had a character who resonates in a way like Apu does. Um, and I hope everyone, if everyone should feel free to share what their Apu might have been, or if yeah. it was Apu. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it could have been Apu. Sure. Share that with us too. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's great to be on here. So, how easily can something turn into a racist meme? Well, despite only being said eight times over the entire course of The Simpsons' history, Thank You, Come Again has haunted Indian children for over a quarter century. Why? It's funny because it's racist. Uh, this could take a while, folks. Thank you. And now, my conversation with Hari Kandabalu, in which we discuss the problem with Apu, how his own style of comedy changed post-9-11, and struggling to get Hank Azaria, voice of Apu, to speak with him on camera. Check it out. Well, it is a pleasure to have Hari Kandabalu on our show today. Welcome to the Brooklyn Studio, or welcome back to the Brooklyn Studios, actually. Well, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, you were just telling me that you used to record with W. Kamal Bell, who has also been on this show. Yes. Uh, t- when you were doing, well, you're still doing uh, t- 
totally politically, politically reactive. reactive yeah. Uh, I was getting mixed up with his other show, Totally yeah. Biased. But you are no longer in these studios, but it's great to have you back. Well, it's great to be here. You know, so I watched the documentary and then I went back and rewatched your segment from uh, Totally Biased with W. Kamal Bell because that's sort of where this documentary came out of yes. was a really great segment that you did in which you discussed uh, not just a poo, but actually uh, just Indian representation, Indian American representation in yes. general. And I was kind of shocked actually to watch it. And a only mentioned once throughout the segment. Yes. And the rest of it, like you actually spend more time talking about in the Indiana Jones characters. Yes. I mean, we only put up with Apu for so long because he was still better than this. Yeah, that's us eating monkey brains in Indiana Jones. Indians don't eat monkey brains. You can't just make up random racist shit and pretend it's true. You spend more time talking about that, and yet it was Apu that sort of resonated, I think, the most with you, Mm -hmm. at least, and then with also people who are watching it. So can you talk a little bit about, like, how this documentary came to be out of that? And what was it about Apu that, like, really stuck out to you? I mean, that's how I knew I had to make a documentary about this because that piece was a longer piece. It was about a five-minute piece. The Apu section was maybe 30 seconds, and the jokes were really funny. But to a lot of people, that's what resonated. And I think it's because it's The Simpsons, right? The Mm -hmm. Simpsons is one of the most important shows in television history. Certainly in my own life, it was extremely important in developing me as a person and a comedian. And, you know, even though I love that show, there was that that one character that stood out that made me feel bad. It made me, as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. made me feel uncomfortable, made me know that that's how I was going to be picked on the next day. Yet I still loved the show. And so I think a lot of people... Uh, when they think of The Simpsons, they you know they think of it in this this way. It's holy, you know. You you can't criticize it. It's it's too big. And um, I think when they think of Apu, it's a character they like because he is a likable character and he is a funny character. But that's mm-hmm. not the point, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so the idea of me talking about that and going after The Simpsons in any way, and in that clip with. You know, on Kamau's show, I'm totally biased. I wasn't, I didn't mince words. Like, I was very blunt. I, yeah. I was kind of mean and, which is kind of my style. But, <laughs> and so I, uh, I knew that the fact I was able to say it to a lot of people is, whoa, he's going after Hank Azaria, the voice of, uh, of, of Apu and The Simpsons. And, and I felt like if that stood out years after I did that piece, then clearly there was an interest for it. So, you know, even just putting this trailer out, I I see the buzz around it and I'm excited for people to actually see it. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that you say in in the documentary is you kind of uh, you 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 preempt all of the criticism you're going to get and you've already gotten. (laughs) I mean, I was reading the comments under even the 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 segment from Totally Bias. Yeah. It was just like everyone saying, you know, oh, you're you're too, you're trying to be too politically correct. Uh, Why do you care? Blah, blah, blah. It's like well, there, there are lots of reasons to still be concerned about it. But you also spoke to a lot of other uh, Indian American actors now and, yes. and entertainers um, who are doing pretty well now, like, and and have shows, have stand-up specials. We are seeing better representation. We have, you know, everything from Master of None. We have the Mindy Project. Mm. Uh, we have, um, um, he was in your... Oh, Hassan Minaj. Hassan Minaj, yes. Yeah, Homecoming uh, King. Yes, Homecoming King was amazing. And so we have all these different representations. So why does Apu still matter now? Because, and I yes. haven't even, I haven't yeah. watched The Simpsons in like a full Simpsons episode in like a decade. It's not even a show that I think feels as culturally relevant as it was even sure. five, ten years ago. Agreed. So like, why why does he still matter to you now? I think Apu matters, first of all, because it's it's a, a part, it, it's, it's, a, it's a part of a, com- it's a community story that hasn't been told. Mm-hmm. And I feel like often we have to play catch up, right? Like, for example... Fresh Off the Boat is based on Eddie Wong's story, that at least initially. Now, you don't really feel that. You watch a show, it's not really so much about Eddie anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's more creative. It's gone in other directions. And the reason for that is because this is the Asian-American family sitcom they should have had 10 or 15 years ago. So they had Eddie, and that was a way of getting it on air. But at this point, it's, it's the show that was meant to be, be done before, where you actually are talking about people's experience. It, it shouldn't have have – it shouldn't be something – 
that's about nostalgia. It should be the actual era. And so this is part of that catch-up. This is part of the review of this is the story you missed during The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And also, The Simpsons, even if it's not as relevant now, it's still The Simpsons. It's still one of the most important shows. It's still on the air. Mm -hmm. Um, It influenced a generation of of young comedians and writers, a, a generation of comedy fans, TV fans. Like, you can't ignore that. And so if if it's that influential, then a character that is a caricature, you know, and is a minstrel character done by, you know, it's, it's paint and it's brown paint and a white man's voice. Mm. Um, the fact that's still on the air, at least we should be critical. Like, how did we allow for it 30 years ago? Why is it still on now and are we OK with it? And what impact does that make? I mean, the thing is, I think our institutional memory is very short and we forget that. A lot of the things we're doing now have happened before or um, are, are mutants of previous racism. Racism mutates from era to era. It doesn't look the way it used to look. Because mm-hmm. even though there is this progress, it's it's strange because, you know, I remember when uh, there's a show called Outsourced that was on, on NBC. I remember that show. Very stereotypical mm-hmm. Indians in a call center. And it was weird because that show was on at the same time that Aziz was on Parks and Recreation. Yeah, They're, like the late aughts, right? Like around 2006 yeah, that's or right. seven? A little bit after, I think Maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that. But yeah. it was it was on the same network. It was on NBC. And I kept thinking, this is this shows you exactly where we're at. Like Aziz is moving us forward. He has this multidimensional character, right? He has a southern accent. And then you have this stereotype like these stereotypes on the same network because people people didn't have the full story. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is still funny though, isn't it? Yeah. This is what people still like while Aziz is in this other place. Like you would expect it to be more linear. I think that's part of it. You have to tell the story. You have to remember how we got here. And also I think it's important to talk about, this is a single representation of the South Asian community, but it's part of a larger legacy of racism in this country. And I think it's important to remember by looking at this character that it's not isolated. Every community has gotten it. Black community certainly from the from the get-go got it, still gets it. And I think this is another way into that conversation. It, yeah, I think at one point you mentioned that uh, Hank Azaria, who we see a lot through clips and whatnot in, in the film, uh, because it took... You, you were going back and forth trying to get him to speak with you. Yeah. And so in one of the clips, I think you, he mentions that he got inspiration for um, mm-hmm. for Apu from a Peter Sellers character mm-hmm. from one of the... The party. Yeah, from the party movie. And there's a clip of uh, Peter Sellers and then basically brown... It, no, not it basically. Is, it, it is, is brown, brown face. face. Yeah. It is brown face. Um, brown face and a, with an Indian accent. Yeah. Or, it, or a Pakistani it, accent. And it's also just interesting to me the way you you know... You talked about we're always playing catch up. And I think the thing that I think people of color or any mis or underrepresented community feels uh, when it comes to seeing quote unquote progress happen is that there's always the fear that it could just go back like it could recede Mm -hmm. again. Um, You know, we saw that with the black sitcoms and of the the 90s where there was there's so many to choose from. And then in the aughts, they just kind of went away for various reasons. There and, is a show called Homeboys in Outer Space that yes. got greenlit. <laughs> uh, that yes. happens in an era where people are trying and taking risks. Yeah. I'm not saying it was a good show, but the yeah. idea that could have made it to air mm-hmm. is like, yeah, people were really pushing it. It was great. Yeah, as yeah. As terrible as that show was. It was great. <laughs> it was great. The fact that could exist and fail is great. Yeah. I've seen clips of that on YouTube. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> and that's part of the golden era. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But, like, there is that fear that you can you can go back and then what are you left with? Are we going to – like, I don't think people are going to forget Master of None. I don't think sure. people are going to forget, you know, the Mindy Project. But sure. no one is forgetting Apu either. So I can understand – why it's important to to keep you know pointing out that this this is not okay and, and then we also had like uh, on the Cleveland show and Family Guy you had oh, a, a white show. guy playing yeah, a black yeah. guy like this is still happening and we've we've on this show we've actually talked about the idea of cross racial um uh, and like an animation cross racial uh, voice casting like it happens yeah. way more often I think than obviously non you know white people being cast as in in front of the camera. Um, but, you know, I, a little thought experiment. If he was played by a brown actor from the beginning, do you think you would feel more okay with it? Apu. No, it's still a bad character. Okay. You know, I would, it would feel different. Mm-hmm. I, I, it would be one level less, mm-hmm. but it would, it's still not a great character. 
It's the writing. You know, Hank Azaria, whether or not he created the character or whether it was given to him, that's always going to be up for debate and probably the truth is in between. Yeah. Um, You know, at the end of the day, he's not the writer. He's not one of the writers. He's not the creator. He's not the one who makes the call. But there is something to be said about having some degree of control because you are the voice and deciding to continue to do it publicly. If you do it as a voice on a cartoon, that's one thing. It's like it's already annoying. But to have to see you do it publicly means you you don't see anything really wrong with it. It's just one of your arsenal of characters. And ultimately, you know, I don't want them to kill the character just because I think that's really lazy writing. Yeah. And also, let's not kill like the one... Indian character right, in the show. Right, exactly. No, it's it's yeah. a cop out. It's a, what you need to do, in my opinion. I mean, at the end of the day, like you know, it's The Simpsons, and it's thirty years in. It doesn't really matter. Like, I mean, the film ultimately, like, as much as it's about a poo in The Simpsons, and as much as I'm passionate in the film in real life, if you really want to know, don't really care what happens to Apu. I don't really care what happens to you know to that plot line and the you know because at the end of the day it's been 30 years mm-hmm. i'm 35 years old i'm an adult i make art like to me it's important where we go from here we, but we need to acknowledge where we were and also the mechanisms in play that allowed for that show and it's this you know there's a part in the the thing where we talk about rohitash rao had a cartoon about an Indian family mm-hmm. with uh, with Fox. And he talked about he was the only brown person there in the room trying to develop a show about Indian people. I mean, that's that. those are the problems you often get. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that's the bigger issue. The Simpsons is just a way to get to that discussion. Now, I mean, in terms of the actual character, I mean, if you instead of killing him, they could like, I don't know, let him own Quickie Marts, which often happens with members of our community. They end up starting in these low-level positions, and they work up, and they buy the property, and then they employ other people, potentially from the community, and so forth. I mean, that's what it means to work in a business. But they don't make that character because the character is created with the lens of a white person. Mm -hmm. This is how a white person sees brown people. This is how a white person sees a brown person working at a convenience store. This is somebody that cheats them. This is somebody who annoys them. This is somebody who com- who complains and yells. This is, you know, their whole life. When he loses his job at the Quickie Mart, who starts crying over it? Not crying because he can't feed himself, crying because everything he knows is around serving white people at a Quickie Mart. I mean, that's, that's white people talking about. It. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you did get one of the writers. He wasn't the creator of the show, but you got Dana Gould. Who's not a current writer. This yes, he's a former writer. Former he wrote, writer. I think, from around 98 until the mid-aughts. Um, so well-established at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you did get him to talk to you. And, you know, one of you compared uh, Apu to Mr. Burns and how Mr. Burns is like this very... Every character on Assumption is kind of a one-note character, but like Mr. Burns, is, he does he represent all rich people yeah. versus Apu representing all Indian people? And I found his answer very un- so so unsatisfying. <laughs> um, I mean, how how frustrating for you was was that, or did you did you expect that? Well, I'll say that there's there's two pieces to that conversation. Most of that conversation, I very much as frustrated as I was, I respected mm-hmm. because. He had guts. Nobody else stepped up. Dana Gould, to me, like in this movie, like people might see him as, oh, and he's saying all this stuff and it's so mean. It's like, nah, he's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. He didn't say anything there that I didn't know already. Yeah. A lot of white people think the voice is funny. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm well aware. Yes. He's, he's owning up to that. You know, he's saying he's not saying he created because he didn't create the character. He's like, well, you know. When you're writing a show, you have a limited number of moves with each character that are going to work, and you just have to use them. Mm-hmm. It's cut and dry yeah. to some degree. We're not talking about – to some degree, it's a factory. It's an art. To some degree, it's like we got to get the episode written. This is the stuff we can do with this character. And the character is long established and has a c- certain constraints until we're told otherwise. Mm-hmm. He was really blunt and honest. And people are like, can you believe he said that? Do you want him to be nice? I think people are not used to hearing mean things, but you got to hear mean things sometimes because that's where the truth is. Truth isn't isn't nice. Right. So I I very much appreciated Dana just being blunt with me. I mean, that one moment was was funny because he had said, like, you know, he wanted to try to catch me. He's like, well, do you think uh, Mr. Burns is one dimensional? And it's like, you know, when he said that, I'm like, oh, dude. Like, I love you. you're like uh, one of my writing heroes. You're a brilliant comic, but you just threw me a pitch right down the middle and you tipped your pitch. Like, I knew exactly what was about to happen. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I was salivating when you said that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they're different. Mr. Bone, uh, Mr. Burns is a is a one dimensional character, but it's a parody of a rich person. It's about somebody with power who does absurd things. Who who uh, humans are his playthings. You know, that is that is what we should be mocking, in my opinion. Like people with power. Apu is a one-dimensional immigrant, you know, and immigrants don't have power often, especially, you know, in his position who are working lower middle class immigrants. And as a community, that's all we had. I I also appreciated his, his honesty. And it's uh, unfortunate that you weren't able to get Hank to actually talk to you um, yeah. about it. And, you know, since that was the case, you kept joking throughout. I, I think you were joking about how, like, oh, what's the point of doing this uh, this documentary if he's not going to talk to me? But do you think in a way, I mean, I think in a way that, like, not having him there also in a mm. way makes it even more telling and powerful. And perhaps everything he would have said would have either been kind of the same thing Dana said or it just, I don't know. In a way, I think it it makes him look not as great in that light i mean there's two ways of you know there's two ways it could have gone and or more than that but at least two ways and it's hard to compare those two things because the other thing definitely didn't happen yeah they're two different documentaries i'll say that they're two different documentaries if he's in it and if he's not in it and i i personally i would have would have preferred him being in it Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day like i want him to have a conversation with me you know this film like we have archival stuff if he felt it wasn't in his best interest to be in this film, like that seems foolish because we're going to make the film regardless. And there's enough things you've said on camera. To me, it's like if you want to control the narrative, you need to say your piece now. Right. And not only that, like I think it shows guts to speak. That's why like, I appreciate Dana. It's like, no, it takes guts to speak to the person, to figure out, you know, where we are, where we were. So whether it's Fox's decision to not let him speak or his, it's like. I think that's doing everybody a disservice. Like the better film to me is a film where a real conversation happens and you can model what real conversations can look like. And especially in a country where we're so divided and and there is very little discussion. This is a small thing. Mm-hmm. But the the ability to talk about it as adults and address it and go over the past and see where we're at now and that could have been really funny. That could have been really thoughtful. I mean as, you know, at the end of it like, you know, we made an ending. We dealt with it. Mm-hmm. We found a way that I felt addressed the thing and was hopeful. But at the same time, it's like it wasn't satisfying. Like I wanted the film to be like Roger and me, except with a happy ending where we actually talked to the guy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it worked out. It's a great film. But if if Hank wanted to talk now, I, was, I would still say yes. Yeah. Because that was what this was about. I, I need it. I like the idea of a conversation because people are too afraid to talk. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he's an evil person. I'm still a fan of his. He does incredible voices. He's a great actor. I question this choice and I'm curious as to how it was made and, and what the decision making is. You know, that I think that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and like I said in the film, there is something about saying no, I don't want to talk about this that is is very privileged. And I'm frustrated too, because we you know, this isn't in the film. But we had a phone conversation actually. Um, After we, the fact? No, during, during during the taping. Except it was you know wasn't on camera. This yeah. is you know I was at home and he he wanted to talk and we'd been exchanging emails. That wasn't the first email. It was a few emails and so we talked and he was very kind. You know, of course I was turning into a bit of a fanboy. You know, it's like oh my god, mm-hmm. it's Mo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he talked about how much he liked my original piece on Totally Bias, how he'd seen a ton of my stand-up online and really liked what I do. And he thought the film was a great project. And he just didn't know if he felt comfortable talking because I was in control of the edit. And he knows how these things go. And he offered a compromise. And his compromise was, we can do this if you have it on Fresh Air with Terry Groves or WTF with Mark Marin, So there's a record of it. Which is which is fair because I can't screw with the edit if someone else has the full interview. Yeah. You know, it holds me accountable. Mm-hmm. And I said yes to it pretty immediately because, you know, the film is about accountability. Mm-hmm. And the film is about reconciliation. And the film is about, you know, in a small way, how do we show how these kinds of things can work? We're not talking about, you know, um, the history of, 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 of slavery. We're not talking about detention, deportation. We're not talking about... You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act. We're talking about a cartoon character. Right. 
if we can make peace with a little character like this, I think it's a small thing in pop culture that can prove to be a bigger example. And I agreed to it. And then we ma- we waited for his reply. And then at the end of the day, you, know, you the email I read, you know, at yeah. the end of the film, there's an email where he says no. And, you know, and to me, it's like, what else do you want? Like, if you're really serious about being in it, then we're giving you what you want, which is giving up a degree of control. Because we respect you and we respect the idea of, of truth telling and the idea that the truth is, you know, is not as simple. It's not black and white. One of the people you interview is Cal Penn, mm. and he says he hates Apu, and he mm-hmm. hates The Simpsons because of Apu. I was so surprised. And, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then he says, he says, you know, you must hate yourself then, in a like, joking manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, do you think that to some degree, how do you reconcile that character with your love of the show? I, I think a lot of, I've... I have plenty of people who I admire, respect, or yeah. projects that I love. But yeah. then there's that one thing where it's like, oh, why did that have to be there? Like, how do you reconcile And this that? one thing is, is like, kind of to the core, especially as a child. You yes, know? This yeah. is, we're not talking about adults here. We're talking about, like, kids who don't have any other representation, who don't have any heroes that look like them, whose parents are now being, like, the source of mockery and have been for you. you know, immigrants have always been that. Mm-hmm. And... They want to see themselves. They want to feel represented. They want to feel special. Because I grew up in Queens, New York, where everyone was present. Mm -hmm. And then when I watched TV, that's when I knew that I was less special. That's when I knew that this this wasn't made for me. Yeah. And that's a really weird feeling even as a kid to start to understand that. Not to get the full complexity of it, to start to understand that. And to me, like I I jokingly said this recently in a BBC article, but it's part of the the self-hate industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. It's about all these things that make you want to, quote unquote, assimilate, want you to change who you are, want to buy certain clothes, want to wear, want want to use skin lightening cream, wanting to change fundamentally how you function because you don't meet a standard. You've also talked about how you mentioned in the documentary, you know, you started out doing comedy by playing into those stereotypes yeah. and playing into the things that you may have internalized as a kid. And once 9-11 happened, you shifted. Yeah. Yeah. In what ways specifically did you shift? Were there certain things where you said, I'm not going to talk about that or I'm not going to use that accent? And, yeah. you know, how did the audience shift with that? Well, I mean, I first started to do the accents because I knew they were effective. Mm-hmm. Every young comedian does what they, for the most part, when they start, does what they think will work. And they don't care about anything else because it's scary up there. And the thing I knew that would work were accents. And why did I know that? Because I watched The Simpsons. <laughs> so I knew. <laughs> and Dana Gould told you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I was I was aware that this was going to be effective. And, and the thing is, my, my accent, my Indian accent was actually an impression of Hank Azaria's impression. Like, I didn't know how to. I don't do accents. That's not my thing. Mm-hmm. I knew whatever that goofy thing was, it would work. Um, after 9-11, seeing deportations, detentions of brown people, seeing hate violence, even in Queens, New York, where I grew up, which shocked me because we all grew up together, um, to see that kind of seething hatred, especially when it's like, hey, it was my city. Like, I'm from New York. I'm from New York City. And it's like I'm getting it's like getting punished twice. You know, it's, it was just so strange. And to see that and I'm like, I'm on stage with People listening, in particular, I went to school in Maine, so a lot of white people listening. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, your audience, I imagine, was mostly white people. And a lot of them wealthy yeah. and a lot of them yeah. going on to, you know, I'm sure we had some Illuminati in there. How could we not? So I think that, <laughs> you know, with that responsibility, I'm not, I'm going to say this crap. Like, and also I was changing. I wasn't a particularly political person until that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm embarrassed to even think it. Like, 18, 19, it took... At at 19, it took 9-11 to make me think about the bigger history of this country. It took my community being profiled and violated by the government and by by fellow Americans to think about, like, oh, this happens to black people every single day. It took took that. I mean, I'm a kid. I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But still, even in New York, I'm like, I, I didn't see my own connection to it. And after that, I, I saw how white supremacy works, like up, you know, more up close than I thought I ever would. And I saw who the country's built for and the danger of not having representation either politically or in the media. 
And, you know, I rem- you know, the stories of, you know, when they started showing suspects and stuff, one of the first people that was taken in to, uh, as a suspect was a Sikh wearing a turban. You know, had, uh, just a Sikh dude. Yeah. Do you know what, what, uh, what tipped them off? The turban. That's not police work. That's racism. Like, that, there's nothing in that. I mean, that's, you know, seeing the way those images played out, and I thought about the idea I had controlled images, and looking at it now, we had two images as brown people, two dominant images. We had Apu or cab drivers or some servile setup to a punchline or the punchline itself who um, was absurd, one-dimensional, harmless, at the bare minimum, harmless, annoying but harmless. And on the other side, we had terrorists. There's so much in between harmless and terrorist. There's a full range of humanity. And when you have two options and a terrorist attack happens and you're angry and you look at a brown face, which side do you lean towards in that situation? You err on the side of terrorists because you're afraid and there's nothing in between those two two ends, right? Meanwhile, I see a a middle-aged white dude shoot up a place. I don't question all middle-aged white people because we have been conditioned to humanize white people, the range of white people. We've seen the range on TV and in film. We've met them in our lives. There are teachers. There are doctors. There, you know, there's, there's, there's a range. And so we see the full humanity. We have to see the full humanity of white people because if we don't, we can't enjoy anything. Like then it's like, oh, we can't watch this movie, this TV show, any- because white people in it. The main characters are white. I can't enjoy anything. All these books are written by white. I can't, I can't, you know, that's ridiculous. No, I, but, but I think if you are white, you, you, you pick and choose when you want to be immersed in a cultural experience, mm-hmm. when you want to see other people's humanity. So that's the risk when you have limited representation. I'm on, I'm on stage with a microphone with a chance to tell my story, and I'm doing voices? What is the point of that? And as, even as a 19, 20-year-old, I, I, I saw my hypocrisy, and I, I started to to study other comedians who really taught me, you know, whether it was Paul Mooney or, 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 or Chris Rock or Chappelle or there's so many, Lenny Bruce, all these people with authentic voices, what that can look like. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, Chappelle and Mooney because they, in a way, were, when they started, they were, you know, they were quote-unquote black comedians who were uh, performing for mostly black people. And when you started, you sounds like you were performing for mostly white people. Do you think that that, like, had they had you, if you if your audience had been brown, mostly mm. brown to start off with, do you think you would have resorted to those stereotypes early on, or do you think that's sort of the natural progress of where you ended up? I think that um, well, first of all, I said Chappelle played for both because after, especially after Half Baked, he had a really white audience. Oh well, yes, but I, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about the early parts of like the career, DC when, era. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like when they were on, you know. Not comic view, but um, Def Jam comedy, you know yeah. that sort of thing was like when they started out in the nineties. Yeah, they yeah. were it was mostly black audiences. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think I mean Mooney for sure. I think Chappelle mm-hmm. had a little bit of both, but certainly like when you see that first special, Killing Him Softly, that's a black audience, mm-hmm. like in DC, and he he spoke so freely. It was amazing that special. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if I, I I don't know if it would have been different. In fact, I think it in some ways it would have been hackier because, you know, we're talking from – I think we still would have done accents. It would have been different laughs. Mm-hmm. I think we still would have talked about community things. You know, I think in that situation, like, you know that there's a shared experience. And also we hadn't seen – if you haven't seen any South Asian Americans ever speaking truth with comedy – like, why would you do anything different? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, our only examples were the same examples white people had of Apu. And we didn't have anybody who was actually speaking truth. So we would do the same thing. I mean, I remember those um, those years after 9-11, there was a huge growth in South Asian comics. You know, there was a ton of South Asian comics who started around then. A lot of them who were talking about post-9-11 stuff. But some of them who just, you know, knew that they had to say something. This was a moment. And... Some of that stuff was rubbish, mm. you know, just like my stuff was. And it took a long time for people to actually make themselves vulnerable and talk about real stuff. Mm. Yeah. Is there is there any sort of representation particular, in particular that you really feel is missing right now from the Indian-American conversation on film and TV? I mean, I, I would say, I mean, yeah, I mean, women. 
Yeah. I mean, if you know, a lot of the like, I have my thing that comes out. I is Hassan's. There was Aziz's show, Kumail's Big Sick. Mm-hmm. That's that's all great, but there's women. Like Mindy has her show, but that's it. And it's ending. Soon. It's ending. <laughs> but I mean, she'll find something. But it's just like. You know, Aparna Nancherla is incredible. There's tons of great writers and actors who are women who deserve, the, you know, their voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you know, D'Lo is is, D-Lo. A, is a trans man, incredibly yeah. talented, Sri Lankan. I mean, there is a voice right there that deserves a bigger platform. I saw him perform uh, stand up once at a at a benefit or mm. something. He was he was great. Oh yeah, people should check him out. For Completely sure. different voice. Yeah. I mean, just like the full range of. You know, South Asians have the full range of um, demographic breakdowns as everybody else. Like, you know, you know, where are all the the gay voices? And Vidor Kapoor is a great, you know, uh, you know, queer Indian comic who's been around forever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's tons of people, who, you know, whose voices have been heard that are new and that would that make waves. I mean, I there's so. I mean, I especially now in this period of movement where. You know, we are questioning, you know, gender. We are questioning sexuality. We are questioning the constructs of race. You know, this is a moment as much as, you know, it's like it's weird because we have all this stuff that was once like just academia. That's now because the Internet and and everything else is kind of infiltrating. You have all these. The fact people are making fun of the idea of microaggressions, as much as that annoys me, the other part's like, oh, you know what that is? Yeah, I know. Or even just like intersectionality being <laughs> Yeah, a like a word. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm waiting for them to make fun of intersectionality. I'm like, all right, you can make fun of the word. The, the movement's a movement, right? But yeah. like, um, <laughs> but, you know, that we have that and Nazis. You know, that, that weird kind of like, eh, we got Nazis. <laughs> um, but who are also more sophisticated, which is dangerous, right? Um, but, uh, well, they have tiki. Torches. Yes, <laughs> that's huge. The movement of their multiculturalism is absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think people need to understand if you really are looking at it in the most cynical ways, like these voices will make you money. Why? Because people are looking for the next new thing. And you know what the next new thing is? Unfortunately, it's the old thing. You think the Apu story is new? This is 101 for me. It's 101 for my community. A lot of people of color, we know this story. I wanted to call the movie. Really? I got to explain this to you? It's too long. <laughs> but it's like it's obvious it's, dude it's a, it's a cartoon and brown face with a white dude's voice i gotta i gotta make a documentary about this i gotta explain this really it's so obvious but i gotta explain it so the old story is the new story until you know we catch up and then we'll get to the next thing or maybe while we're catching up you push us forward so you can we can balance the scales hopefully yeah this has been fun yeah well, my final question for you is when I ask everyone, and you know, we've been talking a lot about representation. What is the last time you saw something on in film or TV in which you felt represented? Huh. And that you weren't actually a part of. I mean, that's there's a lot. I mean, that's good. Definitely Hassan Minaj's Homecoming King. So good. Oh, I mean, he's like my comedy younger brother. I'm I'm very proud of him, and I remember just. He was making the thing. What I love about Hassan is he's very deliberate. And, you know, he always talks about me and Kamau being, W. Kamau being influences, big influences. Kamau also, you know, he's in the Bay Area and Hassan started in the Bay Area. And I think I was one of his comedic influences. But he, he over the years, if he's going to write a joke and he feels like it's not directed in the right direction, he'll call me or come on like, is this hurting the wrong people? Is this thoughtful? And so, you know, we were, me and him, we sat down, we talked about Homecoming King because it was great. And, uh, you know, I, I gave him some thoughts. And the fact he applies the thoughts and he actually is so thoughtful, like to me, that's like, this is it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he's that much younger than I am or it's like, you know, he started a little bit after I did. But it's just that like application and thought of like, you know, that's like what you do with thought. It's mm-hmm. supposed to like get passed down and you're supposed to see growth and he to me is I'm not saying he's past me I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm just saying that it's nice to see somebody who actually learns from other experiences and grows and he's so good um certainly elements of the big sick you know um it's something I've thought about for years wanting to talk about but those adolescent years being a person of color hating yourself being seen as less than, a poo driving your identity, 
and you like a white girl. It's like, the, the, I mean, the dynamics of just whiteness and non-whiteness. There's another story about, you know, that, that could be told, too, about all that and liking uh, a black woman or a Latino woman. Because in our community, like all communities, there's, oh, my God, the racism. Oh, yeah. The self-hate. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the, the we, this is about our community, but still hanging towards whiteness. Yeah, we, we've, yeah. we've talked about that on the show when we talked about The Big Sick, which is, you know, the only, the only thing we can think of. The only movie I can think of that has a a Indian American or Indian character and a non white character romance is uh, Mississippi Masala. Yeah, and I was like, what? Are that there, was are so there? long ago. That was twenty plus years ago. And even in that story, she was from Uganda. Right, right. So she, like, it wasn't. Yeah, his, the father's best friend was black. Like there was anti black racism, but there was also like a his feelings about black people weren't something that were fed by a white culture right. and like brainwashed him. His feelings were his own hang-ups because his best friend in the world abandoned him, and he didn't really abandon him. He was trying to save him. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> it is it's a beautiful It's never movie. so complicated. <laughs> it's never so complicated. You know what it is normally? I was told to avoid black people because the people that immigrated here before told me, and they were told by the people before, and they were told by everything white people told them. Yeah. And that movie is like, <laughs> we're, you know why they feel that way? Because of colonialism that led to all the stuff that happened in Uganda and Idi Amin and it happened because his best friend was black and they, they loved each other and they grew up together. And that's, God damn, that's a good movie. <laughs> that is. movie's still relevant, which is depressing. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been a pleasure to have that you on. That was so great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. It was awesome to have you. And that's a wrap. You can check out The Problem with Apu this Sunday, November 19th at 10 p.m. on True TV. And you should definitely let us know what you think of it on our Facebook page, Slate Represent. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And this week, if you haven't already, you should definitely check out Slate's Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language from pet peeves, syntax, and etymology to neurolinguistics and the death of languages. It's hosted by linguist, author, and Columbia University professor John McWhorter, and Lexicon Valley appears every other Tuesday. To learn more, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Until next time. <laughs>